This episode is brought to you by Boston Children's Hospital. They've got tools and resources that can help you keep your family healthy. The other week, something happened that I've been dreading for over two years, ever since I got pregnant in February of 2020. My son got COVID. Welcome to a special episode of Skim This. I'm Jana Pollock, and I'm a senior manager of branded content at The Skim. And don't worry, the story has a happy ending. My 16-month-old, Lou, is doing great. But if you, like me, have a small human in your life, the last two years have introduced you to a special kind of stress. You've had so many questions. How dangerous is COVID for our kids? How do we weigh the risks? And what about all the negative impacts of the pandemic beyond the disease itself? I know, because I've wondered all of that. And for so long, we really haven't had a lot of good answers. But that's changing. Doctors and researchers know way more when it comes to this disease. We wanted to break down the latest when it comes to COVID and kids, so we called up one of those doctors. Dr. Kristen Moffitt is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Boston Children's Hospital. So exactly the kind of pro you want in your corner when you've got questions about COVID and kids. We asked what questions you had, and you shared a lot. Luckily for me, they were my questions too, and Dr. Moffitt had answers. We think you're going to want to hear them. Dr. Moffitt, thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you here. So the first question is about how COVID shows up in kids. We've heard that generally it's pretty mild when kids do get COVID. And luckily for Lou, for my son, that seems to be the case. He's really doing okay. But what should we be looking out for when a kid does have COVID? And is there any symptom that we should be worried about? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great question. In general, when people are showing symptoms of COVID, children in particular, it's looking a lot like an upper respiratory infection. And that really evolved a bit over time. Early on with the earliest variants, children were still largely having cough and fever, much as adults were. But with the Omicron variant, we were starting to see a lot more upper respiratory infection symptoms, including congestion, sore throat, still many with cough and fever. Sometimes there are gastrointestinal symptoms, some decreased appetite, as well as nausea, diarrhea, or vomiting. But those respiratory symptoms still tend to be the predominant ones. They do tend to be mild, as you said, which has been good news for children, but some kids do on occasion get very sick with COVID. What I would recommend that parents be on the lookout for in terms of symptoms that would be more concerning would be if respiratory symptoms have evolved to the point where it looks like their child is having any difficulty breathing, increased work of breathing, if the rate of their breathing appears faster. If they are having gastrointestinal symptoms that are causing them to potentially become dehydrated, any of those would be symptoms that they should have in urgent medical evaluation. And I would also just comment on the relatively rare but dangerous complication that we now recognize as the multi-system inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID or MISC which tends to occur a few weeks after a COVID infection, even if it was a mild or even asymptomatic COVID infection to begin with. This is an inflammatory syndrome that appears as high fevers, typically more than a few days of fevers, 
A lot of these children are also having associated gastrointestinal symptoms, including vomiting and abdominal pain. So any appearance of symptoms like that in the setting of a few weeks after a COVID-19 infection should warrant an urgent medical evaluation. Gotcha. Thank you so much. That's so helpful to have that rundown. And it actually brings me right to my next question, which is about long-term effects of COVID in kids. Do we know anything about that? And what are the risks of COVID side effects that may take a longer time to show up in a kid? Another excellent question. I would say that so far, it seems that for the majority of children with COVID infection, this is an infection that once they have recovered from it, they are pretty unlikely to have long-term complications. But there are some children, and it does tend to be older children so far, who are experiencing some of what have been referred to as those long COVID symptoms. Predominantly fatigue, children are sometimes having some difficulty concentrating. They may have some ongoing joint or muscle pains, ongoing chest pain. Those uh, really are the symptoms that seem to be predominating amongst the small percentage of children who are experiencing longer-term symptoms. Okay, so with that in mind, a lot of parents are wondering how to evaluate risks. So especially parents of kids under five, you know, who can't get vaccinated yet. How do you suggest they think about the risk of getting COVID versus the risk of just missing out on normal day-to-day life? I think really for every family, this risk calculation is different. So I think that families need to be thinking about what is the risk to their family, not just to their child, but are there individuals in the household, for example, who have underlying medical conditions that may make them more susceptible to more severe COVID-19 infection? I think that if families have walked through all of those calculations and they feel that the individuals in their household are all relatively low risk, everyone in the household has been vaccinated to whatever extent they're eligible for, then I think it's appropriate for families to be thinking about how can we resume some sense of normal? How can we return to the activities that have historically brought us happiness in our lives and given us so much to look forward to? And how can we do that safely? And it absolutely can be done safely. And that's especially true as weather's getting warmer. We can do more activities that make us happy outside. I would say outdoor activities in general can be done incredibly safely. But we are hopefully moving in a direction if case counts and hospitalizations continue to trend in a downward direction where even indoor activities can be done safely as well. I know personally, I cannot wait for that day. Uh, But for where we are right now, we kind of want to take you through some specific scenarios that we got from our audience and get your thoughts on the risk for each one. So first up, how would you weigh the risk for flying with an unvaccinated child? Flying with an unvaccinated child is a risk that needs to be considered really in the context of what's going on with community levels of transmission. How much COVID is there in both the community that you are departing from and the community that you're headed towards? Flying in and of itself, we've actually learned is a relatively safe environment with a pretty low risk of transmission. And that really has to do with how frequently air within the cabin of an airplane is cycled and exchanged. And it's a very controlled environment compared to some other indoor settings. There are additional features that can make it even safer if a child is old enough and capable of wearing a well-fitting mask for the duration of the flight, that would be an added layer of safety to flying. Okay, I see some trips in our future. All right, next up, how about going into stores with my kid when I'm out just running errands, going into stores? 
a lot of that risk is going to be directly reflective of what's going on with community transmission. If people live in a community where transmission rates are in the low levels, then that's a pretty low risk activity for even an unvaccinated child, a child too young to be vaccinated, to be indoors. Again, if there is even moderate or higher level of transmission, if that child can mask during the time that they're indoors, that would be an added layer of safety. So I would say in general that quick trips into stores with a child, a pretty large store with good ventilation, it probably is a pretty low risk activity, but there are things such as masking that can be done to bring that risk even lower. Awesome. Okay. That's really helpful too. I know I've had a lot of kind of grocery store fear and confusion in the last few years. So this is helpful to hear. All right. The last scenario is a big one. Can we get your thoughts on daycare and what the risk is there and how parents should think about that risk? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually one that we have very good data that have emerged over the duration of the pandemic. Daycares for the most part, have all been following very well-established safety protocols that have included good health screens for children and families and staff that have really leaned into making sure that children are not coming to daycare if they have any symptoms. So I would say that has really contributed to uh, relatively low rates of transmission within daycares. They've actually turned out to be pretty safe places. And that kind of flies in the face of what we have historically known about other respiratory infections in particular. It really has not been a hotbed of transmission um, so far for SARS-CoV-2. So I think families who've been on the fence about a return to daycare or starting daycare, it would be completely appropriate for them to ask questions of the daycare that they're considering return to in terms of what their protocols are to keep their centers safe. A lot of them have leaned into making sure that staff are vaccinated and or masked as well, doing drop-offs outside of the classrooms, things like that. So there are a lot of protocols that have been put into place to keep daycare safe, and it seems to be working. The days are getting longer and the weather is getting warmer. But a new season can bring new questions, especially for parents. Like, what's got my kids sneezing? And are IRL activities safe? Thankfully, Boston Children's Hospital has a digital library full of answers, so your whole family can enjoy spring safely. Visit childrenshospital.com to learn more. That's C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N-S-H-O-S-P-I-T-A-L dot com or search Boston Children's Hospital on Instagram. I wanted to move on to risk when it comes to other people in our lives. Should parents let their kids be around people who are unvaccinated? People who have had no vaccination at all certainly are at higher risk of becoming infected and may also be at higher risk of spreading that infection. That is something that has been born out of a number of different studies. But again, the direct risk to a child around an unvaccinated individual is going to very much depend on what community transmission is doing at the time. The other thing to take into consideration with unvaccinated individuals is if they might well have immunity from prior infection. So maybe they're unvaccinated, but they had a documented prior COVID-19 infection. And especially if they are still within the sort of two-month window after that infection, 
they are likely at much lower risk of being infected again themselves. So I think families can take those different um, variables into consideration when making decisions about how safe it would be for their children to be with unvaccinated individuals. So what about a situation where an older family member, say a grandparent maybe, is vaccinated, but they have, you know, risk factors of their own? How do we think about our kid who is unvaccinated spending time with them and what's the risk to that person? Yeah, I think that is a scenario that a lot of families are grappling with. They are desperate for grandparents to spend time with grandkids. And I would say if those higher risk individuals have been as vaccinated as possible, they have done everything possible to to lower their own risk of becoming infected. I would say, though, that if your child who is not yet eligible for vaccination or is unvaccinated is in a community where transmission is moderate or higher, and that child spends time out in that community, another layer of protection that could be put into place would be for the higher risk individual to wear a well-fitting mask. They may even want to be looking into the KN95 or N95 masks. Okay, so moving on to the vaccine for younger kids, which, as we know, is not yet available, although, you know, hopefully coming soon. My fingers are very, very crossed, all of them. We did get a lot of questions about this. So what would you say to a parent who is stressed out about that vaccine and doesn't really know what to think about it if they want to give it to their kids um, and needs a little guidance? Yeah, I can absolutely appreciate where a parent would be coming from in terms of I think it's largely just fear of the unknown with these vaccines, because I think we'd be talking mostly about an mRNA vaccine for those under five, either Pfizer or Moderna, both of whom are planning on submitting data in their phase two, three trials and under fives to the FDA within, I think, the next month for both of them. What we have learned now with a two-year-long track record in this pandemic and about a year and a half now of good vaccination data including now about five months of safety data in five to 11-year-olds who've received the Pfizer vaccine, is that these vaccines are very safe and tend to be very well tolerated. There are some rare side effects that can occur with these vaccines that are continuously being studied and evaluated with data around those side effects being collected. The one that was most concerning was the finding of vaccine-associated myocarditis or inflammation of the heart that was noted to be occurring at a slightly higher rate in adolescent males in particular in the several days after they were usually getting the second dose of their Pfizer vaccine. So that also had been seen in some young adult males who were eligible for and receiving the Moderna vaccine. Again, this is now known to be a rare side effect of these vaccines. It is still more rare than heart inflammation that occurs from COVID-19 infection itself. And we so far have not seen it occurring even close to the frequency in 5 to 11-year-olds that had been seen in older individuals. So it would be important for parents to know that these vaccines are being evaluated in these phase two and three trials that are occurring in children under the age of five with very careful attention to their safety profile. There are absolutely no corners being cut for safety to push these vaccines through any faster than would otherwise be safe to do. 
the bodies that are evaluating the safety data that include both the FDA as well as the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which makes recommendations to the CDC, those bodies include a lot of pediatricians and people with expertise in vaccines and vaccine safety. And they are looking very carefully for any signals of safety concern of these vaccines. The doses are going to be even lower in younger children of either of these vaccines than they've been certainly for the over 12 individuals and certainly for the 5 to 11-year-olds. So that probably will lend to even additional safety of these vaccines in younger children too. So I think we haven't seen any of these data yet. It's a bit hard to say for sure, give any specific advice to parents around this until we see these data. But I would encourage every family if they have concerns once these vaccines are authorized for their young children, to discuss their concerns very openly with their pediatrician so that they can make the most informed decisions possible. So we have a lot of new moms in the audience, like myself, and a question they have is about if they got the vaccine while they were pregnant or breastfeeding, how much protection does that give to their kid? Personally, I got the vaccine while I was still breastfeeding Lou, and I had heard that gave him some antibodies I was really hopeful that meant he had protection and he was a little bit safer than he would be otherwise. But honestly, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if it was true. Can you kind of break that down for us and let us know what that really means and how protected he is? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. When it comes to vaccination during pregnancy, we actually had a very nice study that came out of the CDC that showed that pregnant moms who got vaccinated during their pregnancy, especially in the second half of their pregnancy, conferred a substantially lower risk of their newborn becoming infected with COVID-19 in the first six months of their life. And that probably speaks to the transfer of antibodies that occurs through um, the bloodstream and through the placenta. So that was very encouraging news What's a little bit less clear about the transfer of antibodies through breast milk, because those antibodies get swallowed and digested and probably have their highest impact along the linings of the oral cavity, and then they enter the sort of gastrointestinal system, it's a little bit less clear how stable those antibodies remain and what kind of protection they might be affording to the infant once they've been digested like that, but there certainly is detection of those antibodies there in breast milk, and they are absolutely not going to hurt the infant and may help the infant. I think we just have less clear data around whether or not that's the case. But I would also add that probably the best protection that either a pregnant woman or a nursing mother is conferring to their infant by having themselves been vaccinated is that they have reduced their own personal likelihood of becoming infected with COVID-19. And we know that young children, newborns, very young infants in particular, are most likely going to become infected with the people who they have the closest contact with. And that would certainly include their moms. So to change gears a little, we got a lot of questions about living in the pandemic that aren't, don't have to do with the actual disease COVID itself, but more just this new world that we're all trying to navigate. So one we heard a lot, which you've probably heard a lot as well, is about screen time. Parents are feeling guiltier than ever about letting their kids watch TV or an iPad while they desperately try to get some work done. Can you let us know how much screen time is too much screen time? How guilty should we really be feeling? What's okay here? 
I think it's something that parents with children of all ages have been wondering during the course of the pandemic. But I think that the way I have heard child psychologists and developmental pediatricians really describe this is that it's not so much about limiting screen time to a fixed number of hours or minutes. It's really about the content that children are exposed to when they are having screen time. And it's about making sure that screen time is just one balanced part of a child's overall social and emotional development and interactions. I've never seen a hard and fast number. It really has to be about the balance. And I think families and parents and moms really need to cut themselves some slack And keep in mind that part of that balance has to do with their own ability as a parent to take care of themselves and to do what they need to do to keep themselves physically and mentally happy and feel taken care of. And if that means that their child spends an extra 30 minutes with a show on a tablet on their lap so that parent can do something for themselves that is going to make them feel better, then that is important too. As a working mom, I love that answer. We'll try to work on putting myself first. Uh, Sometimes not so easy to do. I appreciate your push there. So we heard from a lot of parents who said, you know, I never thought I'd be worried about my kids' mental health when they were this young, but here I am. What would you say to parents who are looking at their kids and wondering how they're doing mentally? Um, How can they look out for signs of depression and how can they be a support system for kids who are struggling? Yeah, another excellent question. And I think we are really just starting to scratch the surface of the unbelievable mental health burden that the pandemic has extolled on children, really, of all ages. I would encourage parents to keep an eye out for a handful of symptoms, even in grade school age children, that would really look like that child is withdrawing from the activities and interactions that have otherwise always made him or her happy. So if it is a child who is losing interest in spending time with friends, losing interest in spending time with family, losing interest in either the sports or the other activities, uh, singing or music or whatever it is that has always made that child really happy, If that is a consistent finding for a child, that may be a sign that child is experiencing some depression. Changes in appetite, changes in their sleep schedules and their ability to get high quality sleep would also be some signs that um, should have parents thinking about depression as a possible cause of those symptoms. I would encourage parents to have very open conversations with their pediatricians if they're seeing any signs or symptoms like that. I would also encourage parents to really build a network of eyes on that child. And that can include reaching out to teachers and staff at either the program or school where that child spends time outside of the home and really try and get input from as many people who spend time with that child as possible as to whether or not they're seeing differences in their behavior across different settings. Okay, our last question is a little bit more fun. Spring is here, allegedly. So can you tell us what's your favorite outdoor activity to do with your family as the weather warms up? Yeah, so we are one of the millions of families that got a pandemic puppy. She is about two and a half now. And she has just brought so much joy to our lives. She's a complete goofball and a love, but 
She also gets us outside and exploring um, the woods and places that we otherwise may never have discovered. So we do a lot of walks and hikes through the woods. That's something that we're really excited to get back to this spring. Dr. Moffat, thank you so much for this conversation. I know I feel a lot better after talking with you. I feel like I have some information that I've really been been lacking. So I know our audience will feel the same. So thank you again. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Skim This. This episode was produced by me, Jana Pollock, with Graylin Brashear. It was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn with help from our senior audio engineer, Andrew Calloway. Another episode of Skim This will be in your feed on Thursday. <laughs>